Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me over here doing this. This is you over there doing that. Thanks for listening. How are you? My name is Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing well, wherever you happen to be. Heather Crystal is my guest. Uh, she won the Believer Magazine Poetry Award in 2012 for her collection entitled The Trees, The Trees. And uh, that is available from Octopus Books. She has two other collections out, one of which is called The Difficult Farm, also from Octopus Books. And uh, the other is called What is Amazing, which is published by Wesleyan University Press. So I'll be talking with Heather in just a moment. And uh, speaking of poetry, I figured uh, I would entertain you with uh, this screenplay that I wrote. <laughs> Uh, it's a comedy. It's called Man of Letters, as yet uh, unproduced. Probably never produced, let's be honest. Uh, it's about a 40-year-old spoken word poet named uh, Russell Beeland, who lives at home with his parents 
in Anaheim, California. Have I mentioned this before? Have I done this bit? This plagues me. Every time I do a monologue, I always think I've done it before. Uh, anyway, uh, perhaps I've mentioned it. But since I'm talking to a poet today, and uh, an award-winning poet at that, I figured uh, I would read you a couple of brief excerpts from Man of Letters involving uh, Russell Bieland's poetry so that you can understand the nature of my creation. Okay? And and uh, just to help you out a little bit, if you imagine someone like Will Ferrell playing the lead, that might help. That's what I was thinking as I was writing it. I was thinking Will Ferrell uh, dressed in all black and sporting a very heavy beard and mustache. Or perhaps Zach, uh, Zach Galifianakis. Someone like that. Okay? So here we go. Interior, New York City Coffee House, 1987, night. The faces of a silent hipster crowd. They are transfixed. Russell Beeland is at the microphone, making his debut as a spoken word poet. Russell. Ronald McDonald Reagan, are you a pagan? I've got a ray gun, Ronald McDonald Reagan. You want to slay one? Communist man. He is Satan. Pregnant with eggs, he might lay one. Ronald McDonald Reagan, you're egregious, prestigious, and blatant. A Big Mac, some fries, and some bacon. The laws of this country forsaken. The free... <laughs> the freedom of speech hath been taken. Mikhail Gorbachev, he is shaken. Ronald McDonald Reagan, a mushroom cloud in paradise. I weep. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, here is one more, uh, spoken. Do you want one more? Oh yeah, you do. You want one more. Here's one more spoken word poem from the script. This is Russell Beeland at the end of the film, uh, in the finals in New York city at Madison square garden. <laughs> See the conceit of the movie. It's like a sports comedy, like dodgeball essentially. But the, the conceit is that spoken word poetry is a major American sport. So in the world of the film, spoken word poetry is like uh, UFC. It's like ultimate fighting. It's huge. It's like the NFL. You understand? You get my drift? So, uh, here is Russell Beeland competing against his arch-rival, Tad St. John, for the, for the world championship of poetry. If you can imagine this. So here he goes on stage at MSG trying to win the title. Russell. You're tired of playing nice. Your head is in a vice. Break some bread and feed your head. Take three deep breaths. Get off the meds. Live your life with no regrets. Hunt down truth like Boba Fett and don't forget to pay your credit card debt. This is life. Find a wife. Have a kid. Make a bid. Amass a small fortune and live off the grid. Hurry up there, cutie, you've got jury duty. And afterwards go to the gym. Skip your lunches, do some crunches. Air kiss friends at fancy brunches. It is essential to maximize your potential. Make good decisions. Don't live inside the depths of your flat screen television. You must bleed. You must read, take the lead, do the deed. 
The world is a planet of water and granite. If a book is offensive, we cannot just ban it. Life is a marathon, and Grandpa just ran it. Solitude is dreadful, but together we can stand it. I thank you all. All right, all right, all right, all right. So, uh, and did you hear the little, there's kind of a patrician accent that I was trying to do there. I always imagine Russell Beeland slash Will Ferrell slash Zach Galifianakis performing this role with like Gore Vidal affectation. You know, that old school patrician accent that nobody has anymore. So anyhow, there you have it. Some excerpts from uh, Man of Letters, my cutting edge tragically unproduced feature film comedy about a 40-year-old spoken word poet who lives with his parents in Anaheim. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today... Uh, does not live with her parents, incidentally. Her name, once again, is Heather Crystal. Her books include The Trees, The Trees, The Difficult Farm, and What is Amazing. It's a great pleasure to have her here on the program, and uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Heather Crystal, winner of the 2012 Believer Magazine Poetry Award for her collection entitled The Trees, the trees. I am at my friend Jennifer's house, uh, and I'm sitting in the sunroom at the back of the house, which means I'm looking out into a yard that has chickens in it, and I didn't know that she had chickens. What is so it like? What is it like? It's always a little bit of a weird moment when you learn that your friends have chickens. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's not surprising. We're in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which I don't know if you are familiar with it, but no. it's a Where is that? tiny little town in uh, in Ohio. Um, it's near Dayton. Um, it's where Antioch College is. Okay. And my, li- my uh, little sister, my little sister went to the University of Dayton. In, in, oh, okay, cool. Incidentally, so we're we're new to the area. I don't really know much about anything around here, um, about the University of Dayton or anything. I just know um, a little bit about Yellow Springs and. There are uh, fewer than 4,000 people here, uh, but one of them is Dave Chappelle. Really? Yeah. <laughs> What's he doing? The, the comedian? Yeah, yeah. He, um, I guess his, uh, his mother uh, lived here his whole life, and so he spent you know, a good deal of time here as a kid. Uh, yeah, there was actually there was an article about the town and about um, 
Chappelle in The Believer a couple issues ago that was pretty well done, I thought. I want to say, yeah, I want to say I read that. And uh, I didn't, I mean, my memory is so bad that I've already forgotten it, which is the way things go, <laughs> which is the way things go for me usually. But um, yeah. have you seen him around town? Yeah, I saw him. Um, we've seen him a couple of times. He's um, He's pretty casual, you know, about living here. And I think that maybe because it's such a small town, uh, everybody ends up seeing him and it becomes not such a big deal. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, that's the thing. When you see somebody in the wild, it's like, oh, he's grocery shopping and there's only so much you can yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. That. Yeah. I actually, I saw him, the last time I saw him was in the little grocery store in town. <laughs> I was buying farro and he was buying rice noodles. He was buying rice noodles. Yes. Okay. I'd like to know what the celebrities buy, what they eat. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, by the way, what happened to him? He just like he was he was famous, and then he took off to Africa. Like I don't follow this stuff closely. I just have like this kind of like uh, foggy understanding of what was going on. But he kind of had a meltdown, and then just said goodbye to show business. But now he's sort of yeah. I mean, I think meltdown is one way to put it. Another way is that it's sort of a normal response to being a black man in this country. Right. Um, so I think he was getting, what I hear anyway, is that he was getting pretty uncomfortable with the kind of laughter he was eliciting from a white audience. Um, oh. And uh, so I don't know. I think he's kind of impressive. You know, he was at the top of his game. He was doing really well. And he was just like, well, no, screw it. I'm, I don't want this to be the way that I am living my life. Um, and so, yeah, I think he went to South Africa for a bit. Um, and then I guess he's been returning to doing some shows more recently. Um, I haven't been following that that closely, but I did hear about him <clears throat> having um, what some people called like another meltdown in Hartford. Um, but again, I think it was more just like a reasonable response to white people being idiots. But like I don't know. I don't get. I mean, I wish I knew. Like, what people are in the audience are like laughing at the wrong time, essentially, or are they heckling him? Well, yeah, yeah, laughing at the, I think heckling him a fair amount, um, and not in a particularly interesting way. Yeah, well, hecklers don't tend to be that interesting. Every once in a while, you get a good one. <laughs> yeah, they're they're convinced that they are being interesting, but it, it, it's very rare that it actually happens. And by the way, I can't imagine ever heckling a comedian. Like I'm so. That's just something I would never think to do. Like, unless the comedian, no. unless the comedian was really, I mean, I'm basically, like I told you before we came in the air, I'm pretty hard to offend. And so I can't even imagine a scenario where some, a comedian would say something so offensive that I would take it upon myself to heckle. Like, I don't, I feel like these people kind of want to intrude and have some of the spotlight, maybe. They want attention. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they're sort of of the opinion that they could be doing a better job. So they decide that the spotlight should shift to them. But no, I would never, I would never heckle a comedian. And I kind of enjoy even seeing like really bad comedy, just because it's so interesting to see like the way that people decide a joke should unfold. Well, it's also really painful. I mean, I've seen, I've been to some comedy clubs in LA, and I've watched some people bomb, and it is interesting. But it's also, I, I find myself experiencing like a pain. <laughs> oh yeah, but that's good for you. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. It's like a, it kind of makes you more empathetic or something. But yeah, it, it can be like watching a train wreck when you see somebody up there and there's just like seven people in the audience, just silent. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, that's how I guess that's yeah, how it goes. It's good. There's probably there's not enough acute suffering in one's daily life, so it's always good to go see a bad comedy show. <laughs> right. Let's just like, let's make sure we get our full quota filled. Yeah. Okay, so you're in Yellow Springs. How how new are you to Yellow Springs, Ohio? 
Uh, we just moved here in July, so I don't know how many months ago that is now. And, and um, why, why, why the move? Where did, first of all, where did you come from? Uh, we came from uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, which is in Western Mass, uh-huh. um, which is a really great place to be a writer. There's an incredible community there. Um, we're still kind of adjusting to the loss of that. Um, but my husband got a job teaching at Wright State University. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we we decided to go for it. Um, so now we're out here, and he's teaching, and I'm writing, and we're expecting a baby in May. Oh, congr- May. So congratulations. That's, that's your first Thanks. child? Yes, that's, it is. It's very exciting. Yeah. Um, do you know if it's a boy or a girl? Um, we do, but... When are you going to broadcast this? Uh, oh, wait, is it not to, like soon? So I don't I mean if you're trying to keep it a secret from friends and family or something, then I, <laughs> I, I don't. I will not ask you to spill the beans. Okay. <laughs> and I, then I take it you're not going to tell me this child's name either. Have you picked a name out? No, we haven't. Uh, it's really difficult to choose a name. It turns out uh, we have ideas, you know, but uh, it's. It's really, really difficult to name something so big. Yeah, uh, I agree. Though, though I, I, I say... think about this a lot with um, with titles. Like, I find it incredibly easy to title a poem, but it's just murder to title a book. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same kind of pressure. Like when we got our dog, Walter, I went and I like, and I did this with my first dog too. I had a dog, uh, and I fucked his name up. I named him Merlin because I was on mushrooms and I was 19 when I named him. <laughs> um, I was in I was in Moab. Uh, that's like, and that's not even apocryphal. I went out to get the dog, and I was with my friends, and we were all in the desert. And that somehow, like, I decided to name him after a wizard. And um, but anyway, I named him that. But even in that scenario, I had bought all these baby naming books because I felt this pressure that. Uh, you know, I needed to at least be aware of all the possibilities so that I didn't pick a name and then later learn of a name that I would have preferred better. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I wanted to have... Like yeah, a- this is a this is a curious mix of responsibility and irresponsibility in your naming process for yeah. your dog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, these are this was my wayward youth. But um, I did that for Merlin, uh, RIP. And then when we got Walter, uh, my current dog... Uh, we did the same thing, created a list, was exhaustive about it. But then, curiously, when my daughter, when my wife was pregnant with my daughter, once we found out it was a girl, uh, we had one conversation about her name. That was it. And it was. Oh, like, you lucky thing. Yeah, I was like, I like the name Evan. My, my wife was like, I like that name too. We were done. If it would have been a boy, <laughs> if it would have been a boy uh, we would have had no idea and, and would have had like an, a really difficult time. And so. I don't know what it was. Maybe that was just meant to be or what, you know, maybe we just got lucky, but it was a very quick decision that we've never once like looked back on. Or you were both just in very kind of affable and agreeable moods at that point. Possible. I don't know though. You know, your timing might've been good with the conversation. Yeah. I don't know what it was. Cause like I'm pretty, you know, neurotic might be a little bit too strong, but I'm thorough and I, I take it. On, <laughs> I take the responsibility seriously because I have, I think yeah. I, I have like mixed feelings about my own first name which uh, I've talked about on this show before. I think it's like a cultural signifier for douchebag. Uh, oh. If you, if, you look huh. at, if you look at pop culture, the name Brad is never is rarely affixed to, to a character who is any good. <laughs> it's always like some idiot, you know, uh, or it usually is, or some like the, the jerk at the office or like the idiot quarterback or 
Uh, oh yeah. You know, it's kind of like this. We it's got this weird like I thing attached to it that I sort of have uh, you know noticed over the years, and so it makes me. Do you feel, think it? It's because it sounds like bro. Maybe. <laughs> I do not know. I have this is a mystery to me. But like, I even I, I had the beginnings of like a, a personal essay about this in the works, where I started to go through film and television history and find you know all the movies I could you know I could that had bad Brads in them, and it was a pretty. <laughs> I started to amass a pretty impressive list, um, you know. And you know, people argue with me because there's like Brad Pitt, even though that's his real name, and he does the name some justice, though I guess that could be debatable. Um, yeah, but he's he's not fictional, exactly. as far as I know. That's exactly right. So, and and he does sort of, in a way, I think he sort of embodies what I'm talking about. He's sort of a bro, you know, and like in in his vocal delivery, he just sort of he's very bratty, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I am or not, but anyway. Uh, the uh, the one other Brad that I know is actually a wonderful, strange, interesting person who's famous for his practical jokes. Like he has incredible, incredible practical jokes. And this is somebody in your life. Yeah, um, somebody I went to grad school with. Um, yeah, he. Uh, like what kind of what kind of what kind of practical jokes are we? Are they mean? Are they like almost mean? Do they make people cry and stuff? Or are they? Um, they, they're, they're somewhat bothersome, I think. Uh, I can tell you about one. There was a, he was taking a French class with a friend of his, uh, Aaron, and every day the professor would have them sign in uh, to say that they were there. Uh, and one, um, one week Aaron missed class, and then he came back the next week. And uh, when he came back, the professor looked up and saw him come in and said, Ah, the wizard returns. And... Aaron was very confused and didn't know why he was being called the wizard. And uh, so after class, he went up to the professor and said, hey, uh, so why, why'd you call me the wizard? And the professor said, oh, I thought, I thought that's what you like to be called. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how you always sign in on the sign-in sheet. And so apparently for the whole semester, Brad had been carrying like every kind of pen, pencil, writing instrument you could imagine in his backpack so that no matter what Aaron used to sign in, he would make sure that, he, that Brad would get the sign-in sheet after him and after Aaron's name would put in quotes, the wizard. <laughs> I like this guy. That sounds – I see – I think practical jokes are great. I mean especially when you can find like one that isn't – terribly uh mean or you know distressing yeah uh, yeah it's uh, something that people need to do more of I, I feel like we would all be better off if there was more of this in the world yeah well i also enjoy how much thought and work had to go into that yeah. you know it's not like he was i mean you can think of um a practical joke that's just about sort of like setting somebody up to fall over and that doesn't involve a lot of like planning or thought or creativity but this is like a really good idea it took work. <laughs> the wizard. Well, he uh, yeah. makes me think of my, my late dog. Um, I know. I know. I was just thinking he could have done Merlin. <laughs> um, okay. So where are, where are you from originally? You, like, are you from Massachusetts? No, um, but not far from there. I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, uh, Wolfboro, New Hampshire. Okay. So just small towns. I mean, uh, what is Wolfboro like? Is that like White Mountains, New Hampshire? Forgive me for not knowing. But oh no, no, why would you? Um, it's a little bit south of the White Mountains, about an hour or south. Um, it's on Lake Winnipesaukee, uh, and it bills itself as the oldest summer resort in America. 
so it's a fairly small population year-round, but then in the summertime it really explodes. Uh, it's actually where uh, Mitt Romney has his summer house, oh. which is not not a claim to fame I'm particularly proud of. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen, I think I've seen a photo of that summer house. It's, yeah, it's yeah. There was a, in the New York Times a while ago um, while he was running. There was a picture of him jet skiing, which is you can Nobody looks like a good person on a jet ski. No, and then isn't that the truth? It's like when John Kerry went windsurfing. Uh, yeah, you just it's like I think I you know I I was like at the time I was like so what he's windsurfing but then you look at the picture again and you start to see like okay I can see how that could be like bad imagery or branding or whatever. Yeah, I could see that, but then if I were choosing between someone who jet skis and someone who windsurfs, <laughs> I'd go with the windsurfer. Over the, what, you know? is it, is I it, mean, at least they're not interfering in terms of noise in other people's lives. That's true. Is it, and is it, is a sea do a jet ski, or are those two things different? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. You're going beyond my range of expertise. <laughs> so you didn't grow up. I mean, even though you grew up on this lake, you were not. Your youth was not filled with uh, jet skis or sea doos or anything. No, no canoes. There yeah. were a lot of canoes yeah. and uh, you know little um, little sailboats and mostly just swimming. There was a lot of swimming. Okay, it sounds kind of idyllic. It really kind of was. Uh, yeah, I think about that sometimes now. Um, and, yeah, we lived in this, like, old brick house that my parents still live in that um, is right on in the woods. So we would go play in the woods all day, and then in the summer we'd spend, you know, days and days at the lake. Um, yeah, it was it was very natural. I mean, it got to be pretty distressing and boring once I hit about, you know, 13 yeah, I feel like this is, you know, it's interesting because I moved when I was 11 and I grew up in like kind of an idyllic little suburb, you know, suburban town on a river north of Milwaukee. And I have these like really idealized memories of it. But I feel like everyone I talk to, if they stayed in the same town their whole childhood, then once they hit adolescence, they started to hate it no matter where it was. And, yeah. And before then it was great. So I think that's just a function <laughs> of age. At some point, like once you start to hit adolescence, then wherever you are starts to become oppressive. Yeah, I think so. Although I also think that, um, you know, the particulars of this place were, were somewhat challenging. I mean, part of it maybe is just once you hit adolescence, ideas about sexuality start coming to the front, and I think that um, it can be really difficult to navigate those identities in a small town. Because um, everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what everybody else did. That kind of thing? Yeah. That and, you know, there were some pretty um, backwards ideas about what was acceptable. Um, I mean, I was a punk, and uh, I remember walking down the street with my friends and, you know, people leaning out of their cars and yelling dyke at us. So wait, when you Uh, say you were a punk, that was like punk rock, you were wearing the leather jacket or... Yeah, I didn't. Oh, I didn't wear a leather jacket because I was vegetarian. But I definitely had, you know, a hoodie with a cross patch on the back and um, lots of, you know, studs and spikes and things. I had my studded belt, my tight black pants, my creepers, all that stuff. I had a mohawk for a while. Oh, you did. Okay, I was going to say, what was the hair like? <laughs> yeah, usually, usually not a mohawk. I had um, like Liberty spikes all over. Um, yeah, and it was usually bleached. All right. So, like, and what prompted that? You just started listening to the music? Did somebody teach you? 
Um, it, mostly the music, yeah. Although I had, um, as a kid, I was sort of fascinated by punks. Uh, my mother's English, and so we would uh, probably about once a year go over to England and visit uh, family over there. And, uh, you know, seeing, like, really serious punks in London was kind of exciting for me, I think. Yeah, um, the genuine article. So I had... I had an early exposure to that, but then, yeah, it was really, it was through the music. Um, I can kind of, I can kind of hear an English, a little bit of a British accent in you, like a tinge of it. Yeah. People say that. Yeah. It's a, it's nice. Actually, I used to waitress and people would try to guess where I was from. And, uh, it was always funny because I was waitressing in my hometown and they would be guessing, you know, like Australia and England. And I would tell them that I was born like two blocks away. And and uh, your your parents met how? Like if your mom, your, your father's American, mother's English. They met at a beach party in California. Oh, they did. Yeah, she uh, she was supposed to be going on a trip to Australia, but her visa got messed up, so she decided to go visit friends in California instead. And he was at the beach party too. He had been kind of wandering around the country after getting back from Vietnam and uh, doing sort of itinerant work here and there. And ended up in California at this party. They hung out. They went to the San Diego Zoo. Oh. Uh, on their I'm, pic- yeah, I'm picturing like a bonfire. It's like the scene from Karate Kid where Ralph Macchio juggles the soccer ball with Elizabeth Shue. Do you? <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, I, it's hard for me to imagine a soccer ball being involved <laughs> with my parents. <laughs> uh, have you seen? The, have you? Do you know the scene that I'm talking about? I actually have never seen Karate Kid, but oh. I can remember. I mean, I probably saw like glimpses of it as a child, but um, no, I have vast, vast gaps in my film watching. Well, if you want, if you want a window into what it was actually like when your parents met, I suggest you watch that film. Thank you for that. Tip. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so and did you grow up with siblings? Yeah, I have uh, one uh, younger sister. She's just fourteen months younger than me, and she's actually a writer as well. No kidding. So are your parents artsy people? I mean, I'm picturing them, you know, they're traveling, they're on the beach, they're moving out to this, <laughs> like, you know, woodsy town in New Hampshire. They have a little hippie uh, uh, Well, my mother, certainly. Um, she's an artist. Uh, she works in all kinds of media. She does photography and textiles and painting and stained glass and, you know, everything you can imagine. Um, and... My father is a sailor. Um, he's in the Merchant Marines, so um, he works on container ships. Uh, if you saw Captain Phillips, you can imagine a little bit of um, what his work is like, although he's never actually <clears throat> been taken over by pirates on his ship. <laughs> uh, so is he, was he away at sea a lot when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah, for long stretches of time. Um, I think... For a good long while, he would go away for four months and then be home for two months. Um, but it varied. You know, sometimes he'd be gone for two months, home for you know a few weeks. Uh, was that tough? But on yeah, you? he he was in and out. Was it tough? I mean, because I remember, I mean, being a kid, you, you want your parents around. It would be sad for your dad to leave. I mean, now that I'm a parent, I'm like, oh my god, leaving my daughter for four months would be tough. Like, do you remember it being sad, or was it just normal stuff? It, it was. I, I think probably a, a bit of both. At the time, it was just our lives. You know, we we never knew any other way. Um, so there was nothing to kind of adjust to, really. Um, and um, and I think that we got a kick out of knowing that our father was being all over the world. You know, we ha- would have a big map in the house, and we would keep track of 
where he was, and it probably gave us a good sense of the globe earlier than we might have had otherwise. Um, but, yeah, I mean, now that I'm expecting a kid, I find myself thinking not so much of it being difficult for my sister or for me, but I think it must have been really, really hard for my parents. I guarantee it. Uh, I guarantee yeah. it. You know, but I, mean, yeah. I guess you got to do what you got to do. And uh, did did you ever get to tag along? Were you ever like, hey, you know, you're going to be sailing over to Singapore? It'd be sort of fun to go go to sea. Did you? Ever- oh God, I I wish I wish that I had. My sister actually recently did go on a voyage with him. <clears throat> um, she sailed across the Pacific wow. and back, and uh, she is writing uh, a book about that experience, which is incredible, um, really, really incredible. What, like a memoir? Um, uh, it's it's sort of, um, I never know, she's, she's given me the words with which to speak about it, but I have a hard time holding on to them. Uh, she, I think, originally was thinking of it as fiction, and now it's more in the realm of nonfiction. But uh, it's a prose poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. I mean, I, I think that um, both of us try not to worry too, too much about the label being affixed to the thing, and try to worry more about making the thing just as good as it can be. So, and then I mean, this is uh, this is actually not the first time I've talked to somebody who has uh, a sibling who's also a writer. Like I talked to Jen Percy and Benjamin Percy, both of whom are like, you know, decorated young writers uh, yeah. from the same family. That seems so odd to me. Cause I'm like, I'm the oddball in my family. No one in my family is even remotely literary except for me. Uh, but you know, did you grow up in a house where this was really nurtured and cultivated and you were surrounded by books and you were groomed to be writers? Or do you think it's just a genetic accident that both of you have this disease? <laughs> Um, I don't know if we were groomed to be writers exactly, but certainly we grew up around a lot of books, a lot of art. Uh, we were, yeah, that that whole kind of creative side of us was valued. Um, you know, we would do dance and music and all all that kind of stuff. Uh, and but I think that the the most valuable thing there was just that we were never questions for this being the thing that we wanted to go into doing um well and i can you know, so, I, I can sort of see the, the makeup you know your mom's kind of this bohemian free spirit artist working in various media and then your father's sort of like this uh man of the sea you know this, <laughs> this, this ocean going like kind of ascetic i don't know i don't know how ascetic it is but you know what i'm saying like i feel like when you're a sailor um there's something sort of literary about that well, there's definitely something that's um, solitary about yeah. it. Yeah, that's what I meant. Not ascetic, but solitary. Yeah, and um, you have to learn how to be within your own head, I think, for a good deal of the time. <clears throat> um, so, yeah. I, I mean, I think also the fact that um, that our mother was English probably had something to do with it. Um, I've talked about this with my sister before, but just realizing that there's... Um, we had an awareness of language as a, a kind of flexible, opaque thing early on because our mother spoke differently than our friends did, and not just in terms of her accent, but the kinds of words that she would use for things. We learned that there was more than one way to refer to something very early on, and so language became a site for play and experimentation. 
No, that makes sense. My my wife, who's really witty, she's not a writer, but she could be. Um, but her mother, uh, who grew up on a farm in Kansas, it just has her own language. Like she has, you know, she calls like <laughs> she's a you know from Minnesota, and my wife can do like the funniest impersonation of her. But she calls Kleenexes hornblowers and. When, when something tastes good, it's it's numbers. <laughs> it's really hard. it's it's impossible. It could, it's impossible for me to properly describe it. It's the kind of thing you have to kind of experience. Um, but I think that when you know, and then I remember reading about David Foster Wallace and his mother. You know, not to draw a comparison between my wife and David Foster Wallace uh, in the literary sense, but people who love language, they grow up in in environments where it's um, often treated as play. That makes sense to me mm-hmm. that you would wind up being good with language or being a wit or being a poet or being a writer of fiction or not, you know, that that's sort of understandable to me. Yeah. 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 To me too. It, it makes sense. <laughs> okay. So, uh, growing up, uh, you're reading books, you're swimming in the lake. It's this idyllic childhood. It's, it begins to get oppressive. You start to wear spikes and you have a mohawk, um, did you get into trouble as a teenager? Did you ever go through a period where you were causing your parents hassles or, I don't know. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, I, I always continued to do well in school, um, but as far as outside of school went, there was, uh, yeah, there was a lot of trouble. I uh, <clears throat> moved in with a boyfriend one summer when I was 16, this like punk dude who lived in Portland, Maine, and uh broke up with him but didn't want to go back to, you know, another summer of being bored and being called a dyke. So this uh, friend of mine, this new friend that I had met, and I hitchhiked down to Boston and just kind of slept in the park or slept wherever there was a party that night. Um, and uh, I'm sure your parents that, were thrilled. There's nothing, oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing parents of a teenage girl want more than for their daughter to be hitchhiking randomly. <laughs> like yeah, sleeping, sleeping on random floors. So, were you in touch with them? Were they aware of where you were, or was it just like you went missing for a summer? Um, I wasn't in touch for a little while. Then they came and found me, tried to get me to come home. I refused, <clears throat> uh, and uh, then they told me I could stay in Boston if I found an apartment and a job, which I didn't do. Um, but I sort of pretended that I had, and I had to call them periodically and check in. I really put them through the ringer. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about my daughter and like, what's in store for me? I like, know. Oh my God, this can happen. I know. Cause you I seem, know. you seem like a sweetheart. Like I can't, you know, this is just a phase people go through and I put my parents through some stuff, you know, you just, what, yeah. what are you supposed to do when it's the, the tables are turned? You have to sort of, I think we're going to move to an Island, <laughs> you know, as soon as the kid turns, Twelve. We'll, we'll go to an island, and we'll stay there until I don't know until they're twenty-five, maybe. Well, but okay. And I know kids can go. Kids can go crazy anywhere, and I guess they always they they often do. But it seems like maybe growing up in a really small town, or in like a like kind of a bland suburban environment, which is where I grew up, that can almost make it worse, or you can wind up in more trouble. Like if I, if I lived in a city and I had places to go and it wasn't so taboo to like have a beer or maybe I wouldn't have been quite so rebellious. Yeah. 
Maybe. It's, it's really hard to say, right? I mean, because I also know people who have grown up in cities who were, you know, just... Like spectacularly messed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, looking back on it now, I'm really I'm grateful for the things that it allowed us to do as small children. And, um, you know, maybe I just... Maybe no matter where I was, that would have happened. I'm not sure. Maybe too. Or maybe, maybe now that there's, you know, a wider awareness of difference and diversity, that perhaps I wouldn't have felt quite so under attack. You know. So what was it? I mean, people were, were you? Uh, did you have relationships with girls? Like, were you lesbian or leaning that way as a kid, or was it just the way that you looked and people were making assumptions about you that were untrue? It was more just the way that I looked. Um, I mean, I dated a girl for a little while, sort of casually, um, but um, but a lot of my friends were queer, and uh, like I started the Gay Straight Alliance at my school, um, and so it kind of didn't matter what I was actually doing in the bedroom. Uh, the the idea was out there that I was not, you know, of the straight world. And then there's a lot of homophobia. Yeah. A lot, a lot. I mean, it's it's funny to think that you know this is just the the late nineties, but I was going to say I feel like things so I mean, much shit. I mean, maybe th- and it depends where you are in the country in the world, but I feel like things have been changing quite rapidly uh, for the better. Though you know, yeah. which is not to say that there's not you know still a ways to go in a lot of places. A long ways to go. But, a it long, se- long but, ways it, to go. but doesn't it seem like that would be maybe in today's uh, high school environments? maybe a little bit less intense, you know, in New Hampshire? Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, I think that at the very least there's um, less of an institutional acceptance of homophobia in its more overt forms. Right. Um, So, I mean, when we wanted to start this organization, we had to have, you know, meetings with the headmaster and all of these things because there was this idea that we had an agenda that we would be... Um, fighting for and uh, converting people (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah something like that Uh, Um, so yeah it was it was tricky but then actually um, they came around after um, the murder of Matthew Shepard we organized a vigil and uh, I think that there was something about just the horror of that that woke some people up who maybe had been not fully paying attention before yeah that's interesting I always feel like people, once they get to know somebody who's gay, that's really the epiphany. Uh, it's like you take somebody who's extremely homophobic, they almost never have or n- don't realize that they have a gay friend or a gay family member. But then again, I guess there are people who shun their gay family members. Uh, I just don't understand how you could possibly have somebody in your life who you know is gay and not like get it. that Like, oh, they were just born this way. Like, no big deal. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't seem that complicated to me. Yeah. So no, I know. So you said the headmaster. There's a headmaster at your school? Is this a private school? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, it was – that was probably another source of, of distress for me. Uh, I went to a private high school that was mostly a boarding school, um, but I was a day student, and I think that really heightened my sense of uh, class awareness, too, because – you know, it was mostly the day students who were on scholarships, which meant that um, you had to do work study, uh, which the, you know, full-paying kids didn't have to do. And, uh, what, what was yeah, the, there what was was the some, school? What was the school? Oh, Brewster Academy. Okay. I don't even, I don't know that one. But. Yeah, it's, it's not that famous. <laughs> um, 
I can't, had some I, wonderful I, teachers. And, I can't believe, and I can't believe, I can't believe you went to an unfamous private boarding school. It's like just... I think there are a lot of us who did that. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, which one was it? I, you know, I have a fast. I'm a public school kid, so I, you know, I'm always fascinated by this whole world. Uh, I have a lot. Of, I still have a lot of class status anxiety. You know that I wish I didn't have. Uh, yeah. And I'm running up against it now that my daughter's going into school. It's like, oh God, you don't want to, you know, uh, do a bad job. You know, you want to give your children the best, but it's and it's like, what are you exposing them to? And ugh, it's an, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's it's a nightmare that you can't um, that you can't just trust that a public school is going to do well. Um, it would I, be nice if they had better funding. Well, here's here's what I think. This is my this is my new theory. I think that there should be uh, private schools should be outlawed. No such thing. All kids in the same boat. Public schools would be awesome if that were the case. Uh, you just can't do it. You know, you, like, everyone's got to go to public school. That's it. Yeah. That's my new. I'm. I'm going to run on that someday. <laughs> <laughs> I'll vote for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? If they, like, if all kids were in the same boat, and I also think that there uh, should be a draft if there's ever a war, and that uh, part of it should be that, um, like, a central part of it should be that the children of congressmen have to join if they're going to uh, vote for this. That's my other platform or the other plank of my platform. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you going to be running for? I don't know. It's a city, it's a city council. Um, I'll be the, I'll be alderman. Uh, I don't even know what an alderman is, but so, okay. So you're at this private school, you're surrounded by all these uh, rich kids, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was, um, there's like one kid whose family owned Motorola at one point and another kid whose grandfather, I think invented the pap smear and you know, they're just, Whoa, that's they have a, a lot of money. There's a lot of money in the pap smear. <laughs> it's just raining and fun yeah so okay uh did you i mean and these were the these are the uh, like the homophobic people who are giving you a hard time like do you find yourself as a result of that uh mistrusting wealthy people did you I mean you know what i'm saying like because you don't want to do that either it's not their fault no 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 and and i mean some of them some of those wealthy kids were you know the queer kids that were part of this you know group that i was starting to so um there i mean there was definitely there were some intersections and in ideas of race and class and gender and sexuality and all of that um but then you know, just because someone came from a wealthy background didn't mean that they necessarily were, you know, not suffering because of their sexuality or whatever. Um, but uh, See, I don't, I don't mind if somebody's wealthy just as long as I know they're suffering. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that, um, I think that the overall system in this country as far as you know class divide goes is really hugely problematic me too um and yeah at, at a sort of so at a, at a grand scale i have huge huge problems with things but of course i mean i know lovely lovely wealthy people um and people who want to do good work with the with the funds that they have and um who yeah, I mean, who also have a million other parts of their identity that um, that are fantastic. So, yeah, I try, I try to not let, yeah, 
I don't, I don't think it's been a problem so much. Um, but I think that if I encounter any person with any amount of money who doesn't seem to be thinking about the way that finances exist in this country, then, then I'm suspicious of them. Yeah. Well, I do. Yeah. There's just like this huge divide and, uh, I don't think it's healthy. It's not healthy for anybody, including the people with money. Like, who wants to be in a gated community and, you know, surrounded by a bunch of, you know, the masses who are, you know, struggling and, and worse? It doesn't seem like a good situation to have that big of a gulf. No, not at all. So where did you go to? Did you go to college? I take it you went to college? I did. Yeah, I, uh, I went to Tufts University in Boston. Okay. Was Adam Wilson there yeah. when you were there? Uh. Yes, I think so. Maybe. Why do I remember? I have a really hard time. I whatever school I was in, I was just thinking about this today. I um I had I would have like my little group of people that I paid attention to, but then my life was always kind of um more outside of the classroom or when I was in the classroom for the most part I was like it's me and the professor and everybody else can go to hell. Uh, which was not a good attitude. Like I would never want to have myself in a workshop. Um, <laughs> but that's where I was at at the time. Um, so you were, but I was much were you, more involved you, in like you know going out on the weekends with punks and painters and things. Okay, so you were still a punk. Were you uh, doing drugs and like really being like hedonistic in college, or were you studious, or both? Uh, both. Both. <laughs> both. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so you got a well-rounded education. Is what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, but, you could say that. Okay, but never did it ever get problematic? Um I mean it made me unhappy, I think. Yeah. Um but I I'd never kind of suffered in the way that some of my friends did. Not an um, not, not an addicti- addictive personality. Like no uh, addiction or problems or anything? No, no. See, I have, um, I have a complicated relationship with drugs, uh particularly hallucinogenics or hallucinogens because uh I think about them a lot. Like even today, and I haven't done them in, you know, I did them for like a year and a half period of my life when I was in college and then never again. You know, I I had a very limited period of like experimentation with that stuff, but it had an effect on me. And I, I think about the value of it because I know it causes enormous suffering. There's a million examples. People destroy their lives with this stuff and I don't want my daughter to be messing around with it, but uh, you know, pot, there's different categories. And I think like mushrooms, uh, ayahuasca fascinates me. Uh, you know, these plants that is grow out in the wild that have these like extremely powerful properties. There's, yeah. there's a part of me, stick with me here for a second. <laughs> this is, is going to get really tangled and messy, but I, I, I'm, I feel like it, there's something here. Like, I feel like the experiences that these things engender. And I just read about another one uh, this morning about how uh, people who have terminal terminal illnesses have been in controlled, like, you know, doctor, scientist, monitored studies have been taking LSD to good effect and MDMA to deal with PSD. I saw that headline. Yeah. So, like, there's, like, I think there's medicinal um, value. And it's not hedonistic. It's, like, you know, people can genuinely get insight and um, comfort. You know, especially when faced with like these, uh, you know, major life events or death events, as it were. So I think that drugs, if they have, you know, they had any real um, value for me because I did them stupidly. Like I wasn't thinking in some sort of like spiritual or holy or scientific sense. Like I was just at a, I was in a stadium, like shivering, you know, or whatever. And 
Not not shivering, but just I was in a stadium full of people. <laughs> I'm like... imagining you alone <laughs> in a stadium shivering. No, but it was so just bad. It was. I feel bad about the way that I did them because I don't think there was too much thought put into it. We were just trying to have a party, and I think that's a, yeah. That's the that's the wrong way to think of it, especially with hallucinogens. But I think that. Uh, there's all of that interest and in, like, maybe there's something there. And like, there's a part of me that wants to like revisit just to see what kind of insights I might get. But then there's another side of me as I get older that believes that like, you know, a lot of this stuff is just fool's gold and that what the, these experiences point to, you can get without those chemicals. Um, and there's obviously, it's obviously a slippery slope and there's dangers involved. So you have to use your noodle, you know, when you, <laughs> when you approach these things, but I guess what I'm uh, when I look back, at the very least, I think what uh, those kinds of drugs teach you is that everything isn't what it seems to be, which is a powerful lesson. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't. I'm not saying that it provided me with like some sort of clarity into what things actually are, but it just it made me ask the question, which I, I'm not entirely sure I would have asked otherwise. Huh. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. It does definitely, and I think it's. Um... It's a good question to uh, to come to. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's just that I have a complicated relationship, especially now that I'm a parent. You don't want to like be irresponsible, but you all. I also don't want to like when it comes time be talking to my daughter and give her the kind of information that I was given, which is that like all drugs are bad and just say no, and they're all the same and they're all destroy you. And it was just they, they were just lies, you know. And it, yeah. it wasn't helpful. And it, I would have done a lot better with better information. I think. Yeah, I think I. I had fine information, um, yeah, but I'm, I'm glad to be kind of on the other side of that now. I, I think I'm just glad to be done with my, my early 20s were really interesting, but um, there were a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. And uh, to be on a steadier Path. platform now feels pretty nice well i i agree like people always say like oh adolescence is such a hard time you know once you turn 13 like it all comes apart and i'd take my adolescence in high school over my early 20s any day i thought they were easy <laughs> i was at my i was at my peak when i was like 13 that's when my life peaked i was great then oh yeah what were you doing just i think like i joke about this but i think like eighth grade for whatever reason and this could be just the way my memory works which is totally unreliable and slippery and you know but I just remember having a really good time. And I think there were hard times ahead. Like I witnessed a lot of death when I was in high school, like untimely, tragic stuff in rapid succession. College was more of the same. So maybe this was just like, this is why I remember it so fondly because it was before all that shit hit the fan. Um, yeah. And I was just, I was innocent still, you know, like as, as much as I could be. And right, I think right. my, my sense of humor was maybe perfectly tailored to that age. <laughs> when it found its fullest realization and like it made mo the most sense and nowadays <laughs> people are like dude you're 38 <laughs> i don't know you know and who knows maybe that's just this narrative that i've built in my head you know right well those can be useful i guess so so uh when did you peak <laughs> have you peaked <laughs> i hope not yet <laughs> yeah, me too maybe i'll have another peak you know at some point yeah Life is long, and I mean, it might not even maybe a maybe a a graph. A, you know, the, that line is not the right shape. Maybe maybe you should be working with a spiral or something. Yes, 
Yeah, it's not fair to just make it into this like linear thing. It's all sorts of ups and downs. And yeah. uh, when you talk about your early 20s, this was post-Tufts. Did you go to graduate school and do the MFA thing? I did, yeah, although that was um, – I I took a semester off in college, and I also um, – just because of my birth date and the weirdness of New Hampshire and when they'd have people start school, I – by the time I finished college, I was uh, 23. Um, is that right? 22? I can't remember. Um, and then I lived in New York for a little bit before I started grad school. So I started grad school when I was um, just about to turn 25. Um, Where'd you go? Which was really good for me. Um, UMass Amherst. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is an amazing, amazing place. And I think a place where I learned to be, um, you know, different than the student I had been in college, which, you know, like I said, I, as far as I was concerned, it was just me and the teacher. Um, and in grad school, I learned that there were other people who were amazing, <laughs> um, which was a really good thing for me to figure out. Uh, I married one of them. Um, from the, so from, was, from Amherst? You guys were in the same yeah, program? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, we were in um, workshop together the very first semester. There were just eight of us, and we were in a workshop with Jarrah Wire, who's a really wonderful teacher. Um, and yeah. half of us ended up getting married to each other. You're kidding me. No. <laughs> okay. So the, yeah, have, there were eight of us, so two marriages came out of it. Oh, see, I have a theory about this. But first of all, uh, I want to ask you, with regard to your MFA, were you identifying as a poet then? Like, was that like, I'm a poet, I'm going to get my MFA for poetry? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, and that's always... I, in college, I didn't take a single course, like writing course in anything other than poetry. Were you reading poetry as a kid? I mean, like, how did yeah. you... Yeah. That was it. That was your thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, it's um, it's always that's always been what it is. Oh, and uh, with regard to the marriage, you know, the that fifty percent marriage rate coming out of your poetry workshop at Amherst, <laughs> I have uh, talked about this before that I think uh, reading people is a great way to meet people, and that there should be some way to explicitly make a dating site that is centered around reading people's work. Because what better way to get to know somebody, you know, than to read their innermost thoughts? Yay, nay? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure I'm with you on that one. Well, you look I at mean, you. You got married to somebody who, you, did you like his work, obviously? Or was it more of just... Yeah, I thought it was good. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, um, but, I mean, I've fallen in love with plenty of people's poems and then met them and been very glad that I like their poems, but... <laughs> Right, um, would not at all want to uh, climb into a relationship with them. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Most people, actually. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, but you, um, had, you also had the benefit of being in the room, so you could vet this. Exactly. It's not like this was an internet sharing thing. Yeah, you know. Maybe, right. So maybe right. maybe this site that I'm envisioning would have to have like a strong like skyping component, like video Skype and. Yeah, you'd have to. See. I think that that's that's a good uh, safety uh, <laughs> to have there. Yeah, there needs to be some sort of vetting. But uh, okay, so you, you're in the poetry program. Are you thinking because you know it, it's impossible to make a living, or quasi impossible to make a living as a writer of anything? But poets have an especially tough row to hoe. So when you um, were thinking that you wanted to be a poet, were you thinking I'm going to write poetry and be an academic, or were you thinking I'm going to write poetry? 
and just take whatever day job or were you more romantic about it? Like I'm going to live on a commune. Like what were you thinking about it? I wasn't thinking about it very much at all, really, to be honest. Um, I remember when I was choosing where to go to grad school, I was, um, I was choosing between UMass Amherst and Iowa and, um, Somebody asked me, "Well, do you want to um, do you want to go and make sure that you get a job afterwards, and you know, have security, or do you want to go and you know, just be where you feel happy writing?" And I said, "But I just wanted to go where I felt happy writing." Um, so you turned down. And not that I could have done that at Iowa. I'm sure, like that could have happened as well, um, but. Um, but yeah, pr- the sort of practical concerns were not a part of my accounting. Um, wait, are you? I, wait, so, I, mean, I, I gotta stop. Out anyway. <laughs> I mean. So wait, you um, you turned down the Iowa Writers Workshop? Yeah. And you? Do they have a poetry track? At Iowa? Yeah. Oh yeah. They do. I didn't know that. I thought it was like fiction and nonfiction. So you submitted poetry, got in to like the uh, Iowa Writers Workshop and said, no thanks, I'm going to go to uh, UMass Amherst, which is a good school, but it's not quite the same, uh, it doesn't carry the same esteem in the publishing community, maybe. Is that an accurate approach? Yeah, but I mean, publishers are publishers and writers are writers, and the way that writers think about UMass Amherst might be a little different. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I went to USC, so I'm I'm sort of, uh, I have, I don't know. I don't even want to talk. About it. I, don't, I don't even want to talk. So this whole MFA versus NYC thing just drive me up the wall. Oh, uh, yeah, no, it was really, it's really silly. It's it, really, really silly. I agree. It's abundantly silly, and there's so much of it. Yes, so much. So let's not add to that pile. But uh, <laughs> I'm interested in your idealism because I think I share some of that. Like I didn't have my head in you know the business aspects of it or in the practical aspects of how you know i was i went in pretty idealistic and i thought i had uh, i think i had a really antiquated version or vision of how things were with the world of publishing like i i was an idiot i thought you could make a living and think like that i thought books were closer to the center of the culture especially literary work than it actually mm. was at the you know in the early 21st century and yeah. I just, you know, I have to cop to it. I just wasn't, you know, wise to the reality of now in how things were in the business. And, you know, I rolled out with my, my thesis and was lucky to get it published. Um, and this was literally right as everyone tipped over into social media and things started to really go digital. And, you know, you look back on it and it's like, wow, that was a really weird pivot for publishing and that was like when yeah. I that's when I was walking in the door like just as like the building was collapsing <laughs> <laughs> my t- timing, timing yeah I was gonna say timing has always been my strong suit but um have you experienced any uh, difficulty as a result of not thinking along practical lines you know I guess you can't think too practically if you're a poet you have to be willing <laughs> I mean I mean I mean that um you know not in a derogatory sense but you know you almost have to be a little bit idealistic in order to have the courage of that conviction. You can't, yeah. you know, if you get bogged down in practical considerations, it's going to be hard to access what you need to access. And I, I guess the same could be said for writing anything, but poetry seems especially so. Yeah. No, I, um, I, I felt really good being at UMass because they really really took seriously the idea that we were artists and that we were there to be artists and um, treated us, I think, very much from 
the start of um, of our studies there as if we had important and good work to do and were capable of doing it. And, and you know, at the same time, I was really curious about um, communities and loved to be a part of a community of writers, and that led me into doing things like working on Jubilat, the literary journal, or um, helping out with the Juniper Summer Writing Institute, uh, and teaching, too. I ended up teaching creative writing, and all of those things ended up helping me. Um, but I did them not because I was hoping to get a job in the future or ex- you know, expecting that they would lead to a job, but more just because that was a part of the life of, of writing there. Um, so... And I, I think that it's, I mean, y- yes, you have to be practical, and I'm, I, I'm aware of that to some extent. Just, but I think it's good to not, to try not to mix them up with your reasons for why you do what you do with poetry too much. So how do you, so how do you work? I mean, you know, you, you have like a really regimented schedule, or I always sort of envy poets because I feel like uh, you might be able to work in a less uh, regimented way. Maybe I'm yeah. Wrong. Well, it's a funny thing. I've actually become less regimented as I've started working on this prose project that I'm working on. So when I was um, just writing poetry, I was pretty regular about it, um, out of, not out of a sense of obligation usually, more out of a sense of both joy and routine, if that makes sense. Um, so I would wake up early in the morning, <clears throat> drink about half a pot of coffee, read and write a poem, and... Uh, that was how I always started my day. That's a good. So that's a good a way to. Day. That's a good way to start. Uh, start your day. I think that sounds healthy. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was great. Um, and uh, the past year has been like a little disruptive, um, just uh, with you know moving. And uh, I was teaching down at Sarah Lawrence, so I had this three-hour commute that I would do once a week. And um, you know there were sort of things getting more in the way. Um, but I've also switched over, and I've been still writing poems, but um, also working on this prose project that's all about crying. And Wait, what? I find that... What is this? Oh, it's all about... Cry- I'm writing a book about crying. Like a, like a nonfiction... Something. It's prose. <laughs> I'm, I'm just calling it prose for now, and then um, that seems like plenty of enough distinction. Okay, so let's, I want to ask you about this, though. Like, it's about crying. This sounds fascinating. Are we talking like public crying or all versions of crying? All versions of crying, all versions of crying. So looking at it from scientific angles, cultural, personal, uh, historical, uh, mythological, yeah. It's so much fun to research. Yeah. Are you a crier? Oh, yeah. Big time. Oh, I'm a huge crier. I'm surprised, yeah, you, I'm surprised uh, you haven't wept during this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know if you There's still sing time. to me or something. We ha- yeah, we have, we have a few <laughs> Maybe if I tell you some more about like my uh, ambivalence about mushrooms, you can just start weeping. And... <laughs> um, okay, so that's interesting. How did you get on that track? Did you just get fascinated with it? Yeah, actually, it was. Um, it happened because um, I was going on a little road trip from. Uh, Western Mass to Boston one day with my friends um, Arta Collins and Lisa Olstein, both of whom are poets and really smart, interesting people. And uh, we started having this conversation of um, places we had cried. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just I started thinking about how incredible it would be if you could have a map of every 
place you'd ever cried. Crying's good. I mean, you know, at least it's like a, a real moment of emotion and I don't know, there's something cathartic and it feels good. It's like a release. I mean, obviously yeah. there's sadness. Or it's not. Um, yeah. I mean, you can have false tears, uh, maybe. I mean, there's, there's sort of conflicting research there. Um, and it might not be cathartic. Right. Uh, that might be kind of a myth. Um, you might occasionally have feelings of release, but then other times you might, uh, you might make things worse. Um, yeah, the, the metaphor of catharsis is kind of interesting. Um, you know, there's this idea that you have to let it out. You're letting the tears out. You're releasing something. Um, but you, but that's, that's all metaphor, right? You might also just be, you might be producing something or you might just be kind of undergoing a physiological change. What do you mean producing something like just producing a, like an emotion or, or you're, you're producing. So instead of saying like that, there are tears and feelings inside you that you are letting out when you cry, right. Crying might be making the tears and making the feelings. Yeah. Just like, 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 uh, you don't feel good when you smile. You feel good because you smile. Like actually the act of smiling actually I've read this that like the act of smiling actually makes you happy. Uh-huh. And so like even yeah, if, even well, if you're not feeling happy, just smile and it'll generate like the neurochemical thing that happens when you're happy. Right, yeah. Or there are people um I guess it can be sometimes a side effect of um Parkinson's or, or some other um, diseases where people cannot control their crying. They just cry endlessly even though they're not necessarily sad. Um but then they become depressed because they can't stop crying. Oh my God. Isn't that terrible? That is terrible. But this is, this sounds like an interesting book. Do you have a, is there a publisher yet? Or are you going to just write it and then seek print? Um, right now I'm just working on writing it yeah. and, uh, I've, I've published a lot, um, fairly quickly. Uh, and I've got another book of poems coming out next year, probably. Um, so, I feel pretty good about the idea of taking it slowly. Um, well, and you got this baby on the way. Yeah. Little, yeah. You got, you got a lot going on. Yeah, I do. I do. And I, I just like the idea of slowing down a little bit um, it doesn't and say- seeing what happens when I really um, allow something to grow slowly over time. I mean, I've also loved writing swiftly. I mean, I, I, and I'm not ashamed or anything of, you know, what has come out of that. Um, but I enjoy change. And uh, I think there are a lot of changes that are, you know, going on in my life at the moment. And I'm happy for writing to be one of them as well. You sound like you got your shit together. <laughs> I fooled you. <laughs> <laughs> End of conversation. Well, it's been nice talking to you. But no, but it does. It sounds like you've got a nice approach. You don't seem super stressed. You're living in a, you know, I guess you guys, your husband's got this uh, teaching job. Are you teaching or are you just writing? Um, I'm mostly just writing. I've been doing sort of visiting things here and there, which has been really nice um, because I I was teaching a lot. I was teaching at Sarah Lawrence and then um, we moved here and I taught at Antioch College uh, this summer quarter because they're on a quarter system. So I I got pretty worn out. and it's been nice to take a little break. Uh, and, you know, when I do these visiting things, it's so nice because you just you fly in and, you know, everyone's happy to see you and you don't have to grade anybody or tell them that it's important for them to show up or anything like that. You just get to talk about, you know, beautiful ideas yeah. or ugly ideas or any kind of ideas. That's the way to go. The teaching is all- <laughs> 
Teaching is the greatest thing in the world, with, unless you have to start grading, and then it starts to become onerous. That's what I think. Yeah, That's, yeah, it's it's not my favorite part of things. I don't think um, it's I don't think it's the favorite part of. I mean, which what teacher out there likes to grade a like a stack of four hundred pages? <laughs> yeah. Luckily, the, the past two teachers, uh, the past two places that I've taught also do narrative evaluations, which I know drives some people crazy, but I really like them because um, it gives me a chance to actually tell the truth to some extent, more so than a letter would. What is that? Like where you just like talk about the person's work and how you feel about mm-hmm. it at length? Yeah. Do you ever get personal? Like, this is what I think of you? Or do you have to keep it just a bit? Oh, God, No. no. <laughs> No, no, you, no. You've got a dark future ahead of you. You, uh, <laughs> no. You're a difficult person out. No. no, none of that. I remember hearing a story once of the poet Tamaj Solomon sitting on somebody's um, thesis committee and uh, looking at him and saying, you know, if you continue to write like this, you'll be dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough love. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, I think it was praise. Um, <laughs> I think it was meant as praise. Oh, really? If you, yeah. If you keep writing like this, you're going to die? Is that what he said? Yeah, yeah. And that's praise? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it meant he was, you know, writing his heart out. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, well, I, uh, I've enjoyed talking with you. This has been really fun, and uh, I congratulate you on all of your early success with, uh, you know, the books of poetry, and then I'm, I'm certainly interested in this book on crying. Um, oh, thanks. I'm trying to think about well, the last time that I cried. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, or do you have a significant memory of crying that, that uh, I can steal from you? Oh, God. It's really sad. You know, I think because I'm not a huge crier. And, like, but I do remember, like, at the funeral for my buddy in college, like, I cried. Like, I never cry like that. I don't think I ever have cried like that. It was like an, yeah. it was like an explosive sadness. Yeah. <laughs> like something broke inside of me. It was bad, but... <laughs> Um, I was just really sad, you know, and I think I was in shock and I think I was overtired and, you know, had been stoned for like two years and it just like all came to a head at that moment. So yeah, let's end on that note. <laughs> Great. This has been really pleasant. <laughs> this has been, yeah. But, uh, no, seriously, really fun talking with you and, uh, best of luck with the, the future projects, including, uh, the birth of your unnamed and ungendered Uh, publicly ungendered child. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right, everyone. All right, all right. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. There you have it. That's Heather Crystal. Go get her books, her uh, collections of poetry. They are called The Trees, The Trees, The Difficult Farm. Both of those are available from Octopus Books. And then What is Amazing is available from Wesleyan University Press. You can find Heather online at heathercrystal.com dot tumblr.com and uh, her handle on the twitter is at heather crystal thanks to kill rock stars and the band uh, stereo total for the theme song music be sure to check out killrockstars.com and, and uh, please note that the transitional music uh, for today's program is uh, provided by sebastian castillo and uh, i think the band is called what no royalty cigarettes what's it called hang on cigarette royalty i think that's the name of the band uh, and then I also, uh, that was the theme song music from Hoosiers that was playing underneath my uh, readings from uh, Man of Letters. Did you like that? A little stirring uh, sports music. Don't forget about the uh, app, the free official Other People app. Go get that right now. Do that. It's the best way to listen to this program and to access the show's full archives. Every single episode right there in the app. 
You get the app. It's free. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. You get the first 50 episodes for free. And then if you want to listen to the full archives, you just sign up for premium, two bucks a month, and you can hear conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Tao Lin, Sam Lipsight, Jess Walter, Roxanne Gay, Kate Zambrino, Sheila Hetty, you name it. Okay? So go get the app. You can sign up for premium right there in the app. The app is free. Do you hear me? Am I coming through loud and clear? Uh, people uh, who read my screenplays, they always call me quirky. They call my writing quirky. And uh, quirky, which I think I've mentioned on this program on uh, several occasions, always means we are not going to buy this. Just so you know, it's the kiss of death in film and television. And uh, also much of the time in uh, literature. So, what am I supposed to do? I think it's funny. I want to see a comedy about poetry. Don't you? Uh, please remember that Walter Johnson died of a brain tumor and that Goethe was 78 before he started part two of Faust. That is it for now. Thanks again to Heather Crystal. Terrific guest. Go get her books. And I will be back on Wednesday with another program for you. I will deliver some more programming for your consumption. In the meantime, uh, write some poetry. Try that out if you haven't done that recently. Let your heart sing. Don't be shy. There is a bluebird in your heart. Isn't there? There's a bluebird in your heart and it wants to sing. <laughs> Let your bluebird sing. Go ahead. Let the bluebird sing. <laughs>